The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Derek Dorch of the Diversa Group, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Derek T. Dorch. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Thank you for stopping by the show. Today we're going to be talking about a unique unit in the Metropolitan Police Department. We had covered some things about the Metropolitan Police Department before with the D.C. Police Foundation. But I also want to bring some people back because they're doing some interesting things that deal with a number of things that's going on in the city right now. A number of things that are going on really internationally and nationally. And it's a special liaison branch. And I've got the commander, Lieutenant Brett A. Parson. And he's here in studio with me right now. He leads a special liaison branch, and it's a specialized unit focused in on certain communities in the city, also dealing with hate crimes and a number of different things, extremism, the faith-based community, the LGBT community, and everything else. And today we're going to be talking about what the unique work that they're doing, how did they get started, why did they get started, and what's going on. I've known Brett for some time now, and I know that he's a person who's an expert on these issues in terms of diversity, policing, community engagement, and everything else. And Brett, welcome to Fed Access. Derek, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you today and great to be with your listeners. Hey, thank you so much. Hey, you know, tell us about that. I mean, I know you spent, how many years have you been on the MPD these? I mean, I'm approaching 26 years. With 26 MPD years. Here. And you've seen it all in MPD, so to say, in terms of being on patrol, being a sergeant out there, doing other things like that. But with the special liaison branch, you were one of the, I think, the original members of that, kind of getting that founded. Tell us about what the special liaison branch is and what they do. Sure. So, you know, in my career, I've, I've held positions in just about every part of this city and mm-hmm. in, in most of the, the parts of our police department that exist. Um, and really where I have ended my career here with Special Liaison Branch is, is a culmination of all of those things brought together, and that's what Special Liaison Branch is. Most people are familiar with uh, Officer Friendly or, you know, McGruff the Crime Dog or your community beat officer. And really, if you look back, way back into the 1700s when policing initiated with Sir Robert Peel back in London, England, you know, the idea back there was to have a cop walking a beat that knew the community, Mm -hmm. that could walk into any business, could knock on any door, and they would not just be recognized, but they would know each family, each business owner, each organization. Mm -hmm. Well, that over time became really difficult to do, especially in urban environments or rural environments yeah. where you were covering hundreds of miles. Yeah. And so policing developed into a more geographic kind of model of looking at areas and cutting them down into smaller, more manageable geographic areas. What Special Liaison Branch does within the Metropolitan Police Department is we understand that that model of policing and managing police officers is still a phenomenal model and it works all over the world, but it's not the only way to police. And so what we do in special liaison branches, we look at our community demographically. We don't police based upon borders, upon Mm. beats, um, upon even jurisdictions. Mm. We look at the communities that we're working in demographically because of their shared traits, whether they be language, whether it be culture, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, All of those are ways in which people share common traits, and those groups, in many instances, have had a traditional hesitation Mm. or even an unwillingness to partner with police because of historical issues or just lack of access. And so Special Liaison Branch looks at these groups differently. We are embedded 
We have members of those communities who are working in these core liaison units, but also many, many allies within the police department who have come to specialize in working with these communities in developing stronger and more powerful relationships such that when a crisis occurs, not if it occurs, we are in a better position to respond, to gain cooperation, and to ultimately bring that situation to a peaceful end and and a positive end Mm. um, if we can. As you said, we're in um, several different communities. We're in the Asian community. Okay. We're in the deaf and hard of hearing community. Okay. We're in the Latino community. We're in the LGBTQ plus community. And we are also, those are our four core units. Mm-hmm. We're also working in the Muslim, Jewish, and African community. And okay. when I refer to the African community, I'm referring to those folks who have come from the African right, continent, right, immigrants right, from the African right. continent. We're always willing to move into other communities as they emerge or as mm-hmm. situations um, exist. And so we have dabbled in homelessness. We have dabbled in people living with uh, mental illness Mm. and physical disabilities. And so those are all communities in which we find ourselves working quite a bit. You know, as I think about this, and I've had done some research and kind of looked around kind of maybe internationally and nationally, um, you, you see a couple of programs that are like this, and a lot of people are now doing more mental health. But this seems to be a very, very unique program in terms of the mission and the scope and the, 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 the different communities that you're dabbling in. It, it, was that really something that kind of was a, a thought process of D.C. because it's an international city? Or was that just an evolution because certain things were happening and we said, we got to have somebody to do this right now. I mean, how did that evolve? Well, I wish I could tell you that there was some grand master plan at the very beginning that uh, I was able to look at and read management books and, right, right. and case studies. <laughs> and, just, and, and write but it all down. When and we started else. this in the late, mid to late 90s mm. of what developed into the special liaison branch, there was no playbook. There okay. were no best practices. Okay. There was no other police department in the world doing this type of work And what I mean by doing this type of work, I don't mean doing community policing because community policing, as I said, has existed all the way back to jolly old England in the 1700s. I'm talking about dedicating a specific group of people to work in underserved and marginalized Mm. communities. That had not existed. And so we really were flying by the seat of our pants back then, not haphazardly, but thinking about ways in which we could develop this mission. And what we ultimately came to was really a, a three-legged approach. Uh, if you think of a bar mm-hmm, stool mm-hmm. and the three legs to that bar stool, the first part of the mission is pretty traditional for community policing, and that's outreach. Right. That is building relationships, creating relationships, and strengthening relationships with individuals, organizations, and businesses mm-hmm. that need to have a stronger relationship and desire a stronger relationship with law enforcement. Right. The hope there is that you build those relationships before a crisis occurs because if you're trying to develop those relationships when a crisis Mm -hmm. occurs or afterwards, it's too late. So we want to do that beforehand. The second part of the mission, that second leg, is training and education. And that is going in two different directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The obvious that most people would think we are doing Mm -hmm. is we're training our police officers. We're, We're creating an environment where our officers are culturally competent that they know who the people in these communities are, what the issues are that are important to them, how to communicate with them with regard to particular special language skills or just cultural language issues. Um, And so training police officers about that and then role modeling what we're training to other officers who see us as special liaison branch officers responding to scenes. But the second direction, the opposite Mm -hmm. direction, if you Mm -hmm. will, or Mm -hmm. other place that we need to be training 
is actually training the community, mm. educating our community okay. about what it is we do. Okay. Something as simple as talking to a member of the deaf community, if you are pulled over, here is how you should communicate with a right. police officer that you're a member of the deaf community right. so that that officer now knows there are tools right. available to them that they right. can assist you and more easily communicate right. with you. Right. And and that type of training goes on in every community okay. that we serve, whether it's in the Latino community, educating them about our policies, procedures, and protocols regarding immigration enforcement, whether it's in the LGBT community, talking to them about what bias crimes and bias-related incidents are. It goes on and on in both directions, training officers about the community and then in turn training the community about officers so they know what their mm. expectations should be. Right. But then the third part of the mission, that third leg – is the one that quite honestly happened out of selfishness. Okay. <laughs> um, when I got tapped to do this in mm-hmm. 1999, mm-hmm. so nearly 20 yeah. years ago at yeah. this point, I was a tough, aggressive street cop. I was working undercover narcotics mm. in a major narcotics branch. And my biggest fear was that my reputation was going to change from being this tough this street tough cop. guy to this softy cop. To officer friendly. <laughs> right, 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 right. And that wasn't me. And so I insisted at that point out of pure selfishness that we be allowed to actually do police work. Right. Okay. And and the way we have, have phrased this and the way we've communicated over the years, that we respond mm-hmm. and investigate crimes committed mm-hmm. by and against the communities we serve. Right. By and against okay. the communities we serve. Right. So not only are we are arresting people who are homophobic, who sure. are committing hate crimes right. against members of the LGBT community, but we're also arresting members of the Latino community for human trafficking or for drug-related offenses or members of the deaf and hard of hearing community who are engaging in intimate partner violence. And what we found is that third leg was really the the launching point for our success Hmm. because what it gave us was credibility in our field. So amongst Amongst our other police officers officers who, quite honestly, look at community police officers as, oh, you're the guys that go to the barbecues, you march to the parade. But when the 911 call comes out, you're nowhere to be seen at 2.30 in the morning. Well, we're different. We are there at 2.30 in the morning. We are there at the Capitol Pride Parade when chaos breaks out, hoping to respond to that crisis. But then the other side of that credibility, again, it's a double-edged sword, is the community has uh, sees us as credible. Mm-hmm. We are not just the folks that stand up at a community meeting mm-hmm. or go to a vigil and hold hands and sing right. Kumbaya, right. but we are actually the ones who are likely going to be on the scene okay. when you need help. Okay. Okay. And that's reassuring when it's a face that you right. recognize. Right. And that familiarity is so important. That relationship is so important mm-hmm. to gain cooperation and to bring peace and order to crisis. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about what happened at Capitol Pride as we go to the next segment, because it was really, really an important event. It got international play. I mean, I, you know, I saw it on BBC. I saw it on other channels and people were paying attention to what's going on for a number of reasons, because a lot of times the LGBT community, and especially at this point in time, sometimes feel under attack by a number of different areas, whether it be politically, whether it be through hate crimes, whether it be a number of different areas. So we're going to talk about that as we go to the next segment. You know, when we when we deal with this and we've just had, you know, this, it's kind of been Pride Month and, and people are talking about Stonewall and all the other kind of pieces, you, you know, probably were in that time period where you saw a lot of this stuff happening in terms of policing and, and what was going on in terms of the treatment about people. Did that also formulate for you in terms of now taking this role to kind of say, listen, I want to help? Because a lot of times people from all these communities 
for those exact reasons, did not trust the police. They, they looked at the police as us against them. Was that one of the things that kind of you said, I need to work it personally and as this unit and work to kind of build that trust and build that change and help, help them see us in different ways? Well, first of all, uh, your listeners can't see me. I'm not that old, Derek. I was not <laughs> I actually. I was aging them a little bit. <laughs> I was not actually on the police department. He was department during in, that time. On June 28, 1969. <laughs> but um, I was born in the 60s. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I certainly am very aware of the climate and the circumstances and the relationship that existed in the 1960s. 1950s, 1940s, and that still exists now Mm. in many communities around this country and around the world. And so step one is we can't forget that history. Mm -hmm. You know, it it is no different than members of our African-American community who still, still look back at our country's founding and and the horrible scar of slavery and are impacted by that hundreds of years later Mm -hmm. since emancipation Mm -hmm. occurred. Mm -hmm. While not the same um, in any way, shape, or form, those scars can can carry over from generation to generation. And we as police officers need to recognize that and acknowledge it and know that it may be an impediment to slow down building relationships. So I think you're absolutely right that, that we, um, the Metropolitan Police Department, recognize that history and recognize that while we have come a long way since Chelsea Stonewall Inn in New York City in June of mm-hmm. 1969, mm-hmm. we still have a lot of work to do in many of the communities that we serve, not just the LGBTQ sure. plus community, but our Latino community, our Asian community, and on and on and right. on. So, yes, absolutely. Right. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to uh, Brett Parson. He's a lieutenant with the Metropolitan Police Department. He's the commander of what they call the Special Liaison Branch, a special unit that is tapped to focus in on certain communities, working to build that trust, working to investigate crimes, working to train and educate them about what's going on, about what's policing today, and how that the community can also be involved with policing in terms of their community and working with the MPD and other places. They're one of the unique units that are out there, and we're going to talk about some of the work that Brett has done around the world, around the nation, in terms of traveling around different places and educating people about this unit, about certain issues in terms of policing, and then going from there. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. We are talking about the policing. We're talking about special liaison branch from the Metropolitan Police Department. We're talking about this unique agency, this unique unit within MPD that's working to deal with unique communities all over the place, whether it be the Asian community, whether it be the Latino community, whether it be the deaf and hard and hearing, whether it be the LGBTQ plus, because I've been seeing a whole bunch of pluses going on these days, but a lot of different communities and working with international community in terms of African affairs, uh, Islamic affairs, the faith-based community and everything else. They have a very, very big mission in terms of what they're doing, because if you're watching the news, if you're paying attention to anything that's going on right now, a lot of these communities oftentimes feel underserved, but they oftentimes also feel attacked by certain elements. And we're also dealing with extremism, hate crimes and a number of different other elements that are going on right now. You know, Brett, when when we were kind of talking and, 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 and for you, uh, you know, with this unit, we're talking about the LGBT and capital pride. Um, you know, really unique incident where someone from what all indications are saying, someone brought a, a BB gun into the area. But it, I talked to a number of members from the LGBT community 
and they were just saying how frightened they were and how just really a lot of them were shook up by this incident. You know, in terms of that and in terms of the police response, what were your thoughts on that in terms of saying, listen, we've got this unique situation. Pride is going on all over New York and all over the place right now. It's one of the biggest events that's happening all over the nation right now, even around the world sometimes. Are we to be concerned about kind of either a new element where people are kind of come in and do harm or is this an incident where these are kind of some lessons learned and say, listen, this is how we handle it? Sure. So first, let me just summarize quickly for your listeners uh, what happened sure. on Saturday. Um, the Capitol Pride Parade was in full swing. It had, it had uh, completed about three quarters of, of the participants had stepped off at that point. And um, unfortunately, at about 730 in the evening on Saturday, in the middle of the Capitol Pride Parade, there were oh thousands of people within DuPont Circle itself where the parade was was going by. Um, it was peaceful. It was celebratory. Mm-hmm. Things were going well. And unfortunately, some individuals who were inside that very large crowd got into an argument. Um, mm-hmm. That argument um, turned into some violence between the two of them. Uh, there was uh, some, some pepper spray sprayed on mm-hmm. one side, and another person brandished what appeared to be um, a firearm. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine with thousands of people around, yeah. Um, they felt vulnerable. Um, people began to be fearful, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them fled. And what that did was it cascaded into um, chaos. Um, I have to tell you, Derek, that I am so proud of the men and women of the Metropolitan Police Department, the other law enforcement agencies with whom we worked, whether it was Metro Transit Police or U.S. Park Police, our partners at D.C., Homeland Security, mm-hmm. Emergency Management Agency, D.C. Fire EMS, and most importantly, our partners with the Capital Pride Alliance, the mm. folks that are the organizers of that Capital sure. Pride Parade. Sure. Um, we were there within seconds of okay. when the incident occurred mm-hmm. um, because we, we had hundreds of officers. Yeah. Yeah. We had prepared for every potential um, crisis or mm-hmm. eventuality, one, of, one being a potential active shooter right. or serious offense that it right. could have occurred. Thank God it wasn't an active shooter. Right. Um, but because that crowd just began to, to, to move in mass, they knocked down barriers um, mm. to escape from the park. Um, so our parade route was breached at that point at DuPont Circle. Um, we then had an active crime scene in the sense that we had an individual under arrest. We recovered what eventually we determined to be a BB gun while it looked extremely yeah. realistic. Yeah. Um, and anyone who's not familiar with handguns would have thought it was a real right. gun that could have fired shots. Um, we, in conjunction with our partners at the Capital Pride Alliance, again, D.C. Fire EMS, Homeland Security Emergency Management Agency, and the Metropolitan Police Department, we established what's called a unified command, which, mm-hmm. is, which is standard for that, and we consulted with each other. Mm-hmm. We gave our recommendations. We gave our concerns about if we were to continue the rest of the parade. And unfortunately, it just wasn't practical sure. at that point sure. to continue the parade from that point back. Because we had breached barriers, mm-hmm. we still had crowd movement, and we still had an active crime scene mm-hmm. that we were working. There also wasn't a feasible way to divert at that point because mm-hmm. we had streets that were too narrow, that had cars parked on them. So we had to make the unfortunate recommendation, and ultimately the Capital Pride Alliance made the determination to terminate the parade at the last part of the parade. Okay. Okay. And so those folks did not get to step off and show the type of right. pride that they wanted yeah. to. But what this demonstrates, Derek, is the incredible planning preparation and readiness that your government has Mm -hmm. at many, many different levels, certainly at the law enforcement level for the Metropolitan Police Department, 
we are used to large scale events here. Right. We are used to Fourth of July inauguration, right. uh, national security and special events, all on over. and on and on. Mm-hmm. We can deal with hundreds of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. It is times like this when panic breaks out and chaos breaks out that is really our time to shine. And I, I hope that what people saw mm-hmm. was police officers running first of all towards the danger, right. the perceived danger, right. not away from it, right. against the crowd. Um, I want to applaud the members of our community who did exactly what we train you to do. Mm. What we talk about in moments of panic like that is run, Mm -hmm. get away from the danger, hide if you can't run, and then fight if as a last resort. Thank God it didn't come to fighting. There was no type of danger that was necessary. Hiding wasn't necessary because they were able to breach the barriers and get (laughs) to safety. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So they ran. They got to Mm -hmm. safety, and that's exactly what we recommend. Unfortunately, seven people were injured in, mm-hmm. in that movement, mm-hmm. people that slipped, fell, right. twisted ankles and right. things like that. Thank God none of them were seriously injured. But as events go that are that type, we were pretty proud of everyone's response. Right. And uh, we hope that the community was proud of us. You know, as we think about that and we kind of look at these lessons learned, how do you think this will change things going forward? Because, I mean, we've had – you know, pretty good pride uh, uh, events and everything else. And, and you may be talking to other agencies from around the country and other people about, hey, listen, after action reports and everything else, will this kind of change? Will this now say hey, that we need to now, you know, have uh, uh, people go through security screening to see if they bring in anything in the backpack? Will this change certain elements or are we are these things constantly being reevaluated to kind of say, what will we do next time? And with that, does the LGBT community, are you hearing from them any kind of heightened sense of anxiety or fear about anything that, that they're concerned about? And how is MPD and maybe the city addressing that? So let me start with the second yeah. question first, and that is what we're hearing from the overwhelming majority of LGBTQ plus community members and allies is thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being there. Thank you for responding. And thank you for bringing order to chaos mm-hmm. as quickly as you did to ensure our safety. Um, That's our job. Mm -hmm. Um, While we are proud to march alongside our LGBTQ plus community members, ultimately our job was to secure that that parade and make Mm -hmm. sure that it was safe for everyone. And we did what we were supposed to do. With regard to the first, too soon. Um, Mm -hmm. We are still in a euphoric high Mm -hmm. uh, from our Capital Pride weekend, from the Mm -hmm. Capital Pride Parade and Capital Pride Festival. There will as we always do, be meetings and after-action reports. Right. And we will start the planning for next year's Capital Pride within good. the next several months. Good, good. And, yes, we will have discussions about how we could have responded better. Are there ways that we could have prevented mm-hmm. um, the seven injuries that occurred? And whether or not there are things that could be changed, they will be developed from mm-hmm. those meetings and that cooperation with our community partners and our other agency partners. So it's certainly possible. Although I will tell you that, uh, you know, this is what we do. And, and we feel pretty confident while we do learn mm-hmm. uh, from every incident that there will likely not be major changes, mm-hmm. but minor mm-hmm. tweaks to any mm-hmm. planning. But what I will tell you, and, and I was talking to uh, some members of the LGBT community last night, and, and I did even ask them, was there anything that MPD could have done better? And I will tell you that they said that MPD – actually did everything right, and they didn't have any recommendations. So I want to let you know that I was talking to members of the community, 
and they were t- really giving praise to MPD about their actions and everything else. And so, you know, we're just thankful that it turned out, you know, as, as in, in the best case scenario that it could have turned out with zero people killed, you know, just a couple of injuries. And then everything is going to go forward with Capital Pride and the whole month is going to be a good month. And so we just want to thank you guys for your service and doing what you did out that way, you know, in terms of protecting the community and protecting, you know, and making sure the people from the pride community feel, you know, protected and served and everything else. And so with that, what I want to do, Brett, I want to go into what's happening in around the world in terms of hate crimes and extremism. And when we come back after break, because a lot of people have been concerned about that, whether it be the faith based community or all communities, migrant communities, immigrants, refugees and everything else has been concerned about these different issues. And I want to know how especially liaison branch is dealing with these issues right there. We're talking to Brett A. Parsons. He's a lieutenant. He's a commander of the special liaison branch, a unit within the Metropolitan Police Department that has a very, very unique mandate, a unique mission where they're liaisoning with all the different members of the community, whether it be the LGBTQ plus community, whether it be the Asian community, Latino community, whether it be a deaf and hard and hearing, whether it be a whole bunch of different communities that are out there, they're working to build trust. They're working to do a work in there, protect people, do investigations, do law enforcement work and really, really kind of build that dynamic of community engagement, but on a whole different level. We'll be right back after this break. You listen to Federal News Radio. Listen to Derek T. Dortch on Fed Access on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. We have been talking about a unique department within the Metropolitan Police Department called the Special Liaison Branch. I have here in the studio Brett Parsons. He's a lieutenant. He's a commander of the Special Liaison Branch. They're a special unit that's focused in on doing uh, some unique work, building that trust with certain communities, with the Asian community, the Latino community, the faith-based community, the LGBT community, and on and on and on, and working to build that trust, working to engage them on a community engagement level, but also working to do that police work, do investigations against crimes against these communities, but also crimes within the community as well. And so we're talking about what they do right now. Before I get into the hate crimes, uh, I see that you guys are, and I see this in your title, that you guys are part of the executive office of the chief of police, part of strategic change division. Most units don't really have that designation. What is that about? Sure. So um, our chief of police, Peter Newsham, when he became the interim chief of police and eventually became our chief of police, one of the first things that he did was uh, he took a look at our community engagement plan and, and the way we were doing it, and he wanted to elevate its importance, mm. both within MPD, within our organization sure, sure. and around the city, but also to send a message to the community about how important our relationships with the communities we serve are. And so what he did was he moved our special liaison branch out of our patrol bureau. And the patrol mm. bureau is a very – it's the largest bureau sure. within our police department. Those are the officers that are on the street right. that you see out in your communities time. every day responding to 911 calls and doing proactive policing and making traffic stops, right. doing all the things that you would imagine police mm. officers are doing. But that was just one specific bureau under an assistant chief of police. And what he decided was that he felt it was important to have this branch, especially his own branch, directly reporting to his office. Mm. Um, that it was symbolic in okay. one way to say you have a voice, sure. but also practically speaking – we don't just work with our patrol officers. Right. We are in every bureau, every branch, every unit within our police department. And so what it allows us to do is it allows us to navigate the, the bureaucracy yeah. and, and the incredible vast 
ineptness of MPD right. more easily because from the Office of Chief of Police, we can very easily jump from our investigative bureau right. to our patrol bureau right. to our corporate support bureau okay. to our professional development bureau. And there isn't that bureaucratic, right. oh, my gosh, who do you work for? Right. Where are you from? What, what are our protocols? So it enables us to do that. Um, and it it is sending that message to the community that you have a voice. Right, that this is important. This is at the chief level. Very much. You know, in, in that, and, and we were kind of talking before that as the next segment was closing, hate crimes. You know, I mean, that's one of the big things in extremism. We've had a couple of different situations where, uh, you know, people have been concerned and, and you know, even uh, the, 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 the Coast Guard guy who was found kind of saying certain things about hateful things or whatever. A lot of people are concerned about this and, and threats against, you know, synagogues and temples and centers and, and mosques and everything else. Where is MPD on that and how are you dealing with this kind of development in terms of the hate crime and extremism situation? And what should people know about that in these communities? Sure. So what I'd like to do first, Eric, is just educate your listeners on what a a bias-related crime Mm, is or hate crime is and the difference between a bias-related crime or incident, a crime or a bias-related incident, because it's important to distinguish between the two of them to have kind of a a baseline knowledge of what we're talking about. So when we're talking about a bias-related crime or what is colloquially referred to as a hate crime, We're talking about first it has to be a crime. It has to be something that in and of itself is illegal. So assault, destruction of property, threats to do bodily harm, any one of a number of things that you as a citizen would imagine if somebody did that and got caught by the police, they'd get locked up. Then the next step in determining whether it is a bias-related crime, you now have it as a crime, Mm -hmm. is is there reason to believe or potential that the individual or individuals who committed that crime were motivated partially Mm. or wholly Mm -hmm. by their hatred Mm -hmm. of the individual victim Mm -hmm. or group of people based upon their protected status. And in Washington, D.C., we have over 22 different categories of protected statuses that are some of the obvious ones like race, religion, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, but also some that people don't even think of like homelessness, Mm, economic status, appearance. All of those are also protected categories within the D.C. Human Rights Act and would fall under that. So that's a bias-related crime. And in Washington, D.C., if someone is convicted of a bias-related crime, there is the potential that they could be sentenced up to one and a half times Mm. the standard sentence uh, if they had just been convicted of a non-bias-related crime of the same type. A bias-related incident is simply not a crime. No crime has occurred, but we still recognize that an event occurred, Mm -hmm. a situation occurred where bias, hatred, or prejudice was present. And why we record those as well Mm -hmm. is because we find that they are really good indicators for where we need to put our resources. Mm, Communities where we need officers, where we need education, where we need outreach. So if we are tracking non-criminal events, and hopefully doing the important work of liaison work mm-hmm. and community work, mm-hmm. then it doesn't rise to the level of criminal activity later okay. on. Okay. And that's why we distinguish between the two of them. Right. Um, unfortunately, over the last several years, mm-hmm. we have continued to see an increase in the total number of bias-related crimes and incidents reported mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. Now, we believe there are many reasons for that, um, and many of them are actually, I think, very positive reasons. The first is we need to acknowledge that there very well may be more bias-related crimes that are occurring, all right? Mm -hmm. There is a difference between reported 
and actual crimes. Mm -hmm. We know that not all crimes are reported to the Metropolitan Police Department. We know that we are doing a better job in 2019 than we were doing in 2000 Mm -hmm. at recognizing, documenting, and responding to bias-related crimes. And so part of the reason we believe these numbers are up are just back in 2015, we trained every member of the Metropolitan Police Department, retrained them, I should say, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and reminded them of our policies, procedures, and protocols. We taught them the proper way to ask Mm -hmm. questions. We taught them how to do the report. We refreshed them. Mm -hmm. So you would hope that after that training, we came out and we did a better job and we were collecting more data. Secondly, we have, for for now more than two decades, been working in some of those communities that are the most targeted for bias-related crimes. Right. right. So if you are building trust and relationships in those communities, you would hope that they're mm-hmm. going to report to you. Mm-hmm. Where if you don't have a relationship right. with them, you're right. never going to learn about their right. victimization. So in some ways, we are a victim of our own success. Sure. Sure. The more we engage and build positive relationships, the more, you're going to hear. The more likely they are going to report to us. Right. Does that mean there are more bias-related crimes occurring? Maybe not. Maybe yes. Mm-hmm. But it definitely means that more are coming to our attention. Mm-hmm. Also, we can't forget that every day, every year, technology, social media, it gets better and better. We are learning about more and more cases that are not direct reporting, where someone posts a tweet or posts on Facebook a horrible photo of them being assaulted or somehow the victim of a crime, and they say, I was gay bashed or I was the victim of anti-immigrant assault. Well, we don't ignore that. We're in the community as well. We then reach out to those individuals and we seek that report if they want to share it with us. And so we know that we have an increase there. And then finally, we also know that the more awareness there is in the community, the more people will report. So it's sort of feeding itself that if you know that a neighbor reported they were the victim of a hate crime, you're more likely to report that you were the victim of a hate crime when Mm -hmm. it happens to you because you've heard that someone did it. That it was a positive experience dealing with the police, that the police reacted appropriately and professionally. Right. Um, so we know that that's one of the reasons as well. You know, what have you found to be the main reasons why people will hesitate? And I know that you're now kind of changing that and kind of building that bridge between that gap. But why have they hesitated to contact the police? What have you seen as maybe some of the top reasons of why they were hesitant to talk to the police? So. You know, every case is different, mm-hmm. but but I think generally speaking, the first is fear, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. When someone has just been through a traumatic event, sometimes they're just not thinking clearly or mm-hmm. logically the way you and I sitting in a sterile, sure. you know, radio <laughs> right. uh, environment, uh, right. uh, environment would think. So when your heart is pounding and when right. you're scared and you just want to escape from that traumatic event, sometimes the first thing to do is not to reach out to right. 911 and to stay there and wait for a police right. officer. Right. So that's a very natural thing that we know occurs. The other is we know that there are people that don't necessarily have a positive or trusting relationship with Mm. law enforcement. And so their first decision is not to reach out to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It's to reach out to friends Mm -hmm. or clergy members Mm -hmm. or or family. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so that's another reason why people may not reach out. And then finally, there are some people that are victimized that may be engaging in activity Mm. that they're worried that they may get in trouble Mm. because they were engaging in some sort of, if not a criminal act, something they believe is not not worthy of 
uh, reporting right. because they may get uh, be under scrutiny for some right. reason. And so they may delay their reporting or not report for those reasons. Okay, okay. And then in your team, is, is that one of the main things, especially Azon Branch deals, to try to, you know, uh, kind of pull that mindset out of kind of that scrutiny that, hey, listen, you know, we're a different type of police and we try to educate our officers to be different by our examples, but we want you to talk to us because even though you may have been part of whatever, we're going to treat you in a different kind of stance going forward. Sure. That, that is really kind of one of the core tenets of what we do mm. is we do not judge. Mm. Um, we treat every member of the community with whom we come in contact with dignity, respect, and relevance. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, dignity and respect is, is important, but relevance if your sexual orientation or what you were doing at the time you were victimized is not relevant to the investigation, then that's not something we're going to talk to you about or ask about. And if we do have to, if it's relevant to the investigation, we're going to do that in a professional, respectful, caring way that you don't feel like you're the target of the investigation as the victim or the survivor. We're going to do that in a way that you feel like you understand why those questions are being asked and that there is a reason professionally behind it. Right. One before we go to the uh, last segment with immigrants and people like that who kind of say, listen, I'm concerned about my status here, you know, and they wonder oftentimes they may not report because they're concerned that they're going to get deported or whatever. How do what's the MPD stance on that and the city stance on that? Well, let me make perfectly clear that Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., um, is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a sanctuary city. Okay, we we. Follow federal law. We do what we are required to do based upon the federal statute, but we do not investigate, inquire about, or concern ourselves with individuals' immigration status um, when it comes to investigating and responding to criminal or criminal incidents or crime or, or or non-criminal incidents. That anyone should feel safe coming to a metropolitan police department officer, knowing that they will be treated with dignity and respect and relevance to what is being reported to them. That doesn't mean we can always protect them from the process of the criminal justice system because down the line there are other people that need to get involved. And we need to be very honest about that, that there are parts of the process we simply don't control when it gets into the court system Mm -hmm. or into other parts. Mm -hmm. But that when you're dealing with members of the Metropolitan Police Department or other members of D.C. government, your immigration status, how you came to be here in the United Mm -hmm. States and in Washington, D.C., is irrelevant to us, hmm. and you will be treated with the same respect and dignity and have all the same rights as anyone who was born here in the United States, and you should know that you will be treated that way. We're talking to Lieutenant Brett Parson. He is the commander of the Special Liaison Branch of the Metropolitan Police Department, working on unique issues, working with unique communities, working to build trust, working to investigate those kind of unique crimes that sometimes are in these communities right there, and then also investigate within the community because there are crimes that are going on and they're working to protect the members of that community and the citizens at whole. We're going to be right back after this break. We're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortcher on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. We've been talking about the special liaison branch, a unique part of the Metropolitan Police Department that's sole purpose is really to work with unique communities, working with the LGBT community, work LGBT community 
plus. Community. Brett was looking at me saying, hey, listen, add on that plus. Working with them, working with the Latino community, the Asian community, working with the African community, people from African countries, working from a number of faith-based communities and everything else. They have a very, very unique mission because also D.C. is a unique area and has all these different constituents and unique areas that have to be dealt with. In terms of what's going on, Brett, and in terms of, you know, you, you deal with, you know, deaf and hard of hearing. I, I didn't even mention them all. But what tools do you use? I mean, you're dealing with the international community that a lot of people may not speak English. You know, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with those who are deaf and hard of hearing and an officer doesn't know how to talk sign or things of that sort? What tools does your unit bring to the table in order to deal with those situations? Well, first of all, it starts with recruiting. Okay. It starts with having a police department that reflects the community mm. that we serve. Um, we have you know just under 4,000 police officers right. here in Washington, D.C. with the Metropolitan Police Department. With our partners in federal law enforcement and other local agencies, you know, we have thousands and thousands of police officers that are from different countries, right. speak different languages, right. and have the ability to communicate. And so mm. the first line is to have a diverse work group, mm-hmm. and we have that diverse work group. Good. That doesn't mean that they'll always be available. They get days right. off, they go right. sick, they have vacations, right. things like that. So we have created um, protocols and systems in place where we're using technology now. So there is the language access line, which allows a police officer seven days a week, 24 hours a day, to call a number, give a code, and to be able to get a certified interpreter for well over 200 different languages on the phone to communicate with a person who is in crisis or needs help immediately. Now, that isn't necessarily the best system for someone to do a long-term interview or a legal interview, but we're going to get the immediate crisis taken care of. Are you okay? Do you need an ambulance? What happened to you? What did they look like? Which way did they go? Mm -hmm. To go ahead and and restore order to chaos Mm -hmm. in that immediate moment. But then we have access to professional interpreters. Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. is the capital. We have every country, every you know, culture represented here. And so we can find a certified interpreter to go face-to-face for that follow-up interview if we need to. With regard to the deaf and hard and hearing community, um, I I would challenge any listener to find a jurisdiction that is doing what we're doing in our deaf and hard Mm. and hearing community. We have Gallaudet University here. Mm. We're very proud. It is is the, the benchmark for education in the deaf and hard of hearing community and for those wanting to learn about its culture and, um, It is a campus in Northeast Washington. We have the ability through uh, tablets to immediately get a certified American Sign Language interpreter Mm. to someone who who communicates in that way 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have one in all of our police districts, and we have them strategically placed in some of our district stations that have the higher populations. We also have members of our police department who are certified in American Sign Language, and then we have a very robust partnership with a local interpretive service that if we need to do a follow-up interview in more detail, mm. that we can get professional certified deaf interpreters or American Sign Language interpreters there to do that interpretation in a professional way. Wow. And and, and I'm assuming, Brett, I mean, given what you're saying, that you there may be other law enforcement agencies internationally or nationally who may be reaching out to you and saying, listen, how did you create this type of unit? Like what ended up happening to where you got this? Are you going out and talking about this kind of stuff to people? Are you kind of leading the pack in terms of saying that other uh, cities, maybe even major or, or smaller, need to develop something like this? 
never in my wildest imagination did I think <laughs> that this, you know, city cop, you know, working, you know, narcotics or in the fourth district at the beginning sure. of my career would be called upon by agencies around the world to get our experience and expertise mm. on issues like this. We've been very lucky, whether it's our LGBT liaison unit, which back then was known as the Gay and Lesbian Liaison mm-hmm. Unit, that won the Harvard Innovations in American Government Award, mm. that really put that unit on the map internationally, recognized for the unique work it was doing and how it was serving the LGBTQ plus mm. community back wow. then. It came with a grant to help us replicate okay. our work throughout the world. Um, but we have now, since we've joined under the Special Liaison Branch umbrella, we've we've spread that out now, and all of our units are part of that. We have had visitors from Brazil, Mexico, uh, El Salvador. We have had visit. Uh, we've gone to Rhode Island to help the Rhode Island law enforcement there uh, stand up a deaf and hard of hearing mm. outreach program. There, we have been asked to consult by the National Center for Transgender Equality. We've are traveling to conferences in New York and Toronto. Right. I was in Amsterdam. Um, wow. it, it is unbelievable, first of all, the need mm-hmm. that is around the world right mm-hmm. now surrounding many of these issues because while we'd like to think that the United States is just sort of in this little silo and we're right. unique, right. these issues are going on around the world. Right. And we're very lucky being in the nation's capital that we have the exposure but also the reach that we can help when these other agencies and governments mm. reach out to us. Mm. And we're very proud to do it. You know, the, the, and, and, and I've got, we got maybe less than 60 seconds, but if you had to tell someone, you know, about kind of policing going forward and maybe what you're doing, do you have hope about what policing is going forward? And, and what's your take on where things need to kind of constantly change? Well, do I have hope? Absolutely. Um, I have hope because, Policing is necessary wherever you are in the world, and that includes our nation's capital. What is going to change in the future is what our police department looks like and mm. what we are asked to do. Okay. And that is up to our community to tell us Okay. through partnerships and relationships and sometimes really difficult dialogue, talking about what it is you want your police officers to be, where you want them to respond, and how you want them to respond to certain types of events that occur in your community. I think that's the dialogue that we're having now and we will continue to have on and on and on in our society. And I think we in the Metropolitan Police Department, and I would say most of my my law enforcement peers around the world, we're willing to have that dialogue. This is not something that is set in concrete. We know that our society is changing mm-hmm. and we know that the presence and the tactics of police officers have to change mm-hmm. with that. What that looks like, we don't know okay. because we're on sand that is always moving. Sure. And all it takes is a 9-11 type of an event right. for the pendulum to swing for wanting more aggressive policing. Right. And then it swings back as time goes on. Okay, let's let's be a little bit more community-oriented. Community and we need to have that flexibility in law enforcement. We're happy to be flexible and we're happy to have that dialogue. And the last thing I would say is if anyone wants to know more about the special liaison branch, um, we're available on the internet at mpdc.dc.gov backslash SLB for special liaison branch. And we would encourage you to reach out to us. All of our liaison units have a part on that page to include our duty phone numbers. And if you needed to reach out 24 hours a day, seven days a week, a member of one of those core liaison units is available to consult with them 
and express your concerns. And if you didn't catch that, just Google MPDC Special Liaison Branch, and it'll come up as well. And then we've been talking to Brett Parson, and he's a lieutenant in the MPD. He's a commander, uh, the commander, I should say, of the Special Liaison Branch. They're part of the chief's office in the Strategic Change Division who has been given the mandate to really kind of go out there and really, really impact this community. Been around since the 90s doing this work, and now we're starting to get the recognition that they deserve in terms of the work they're doing, in terms of building trust with a wide variety of communities, but then also bringing the tools to bear. The deaf community, whether it be those who speak other languages or whoever, but they're doing some amazing work out there, and we appreciate your service, Brett. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming on Fed Access. You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 1 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. This just in. Reportedly, pigs can fly. We're going live to... Can't take another crazy headline? Well, here's something you can appreciate. The MyGM Rewards card gives you best-in-class rewards with four points for every dollar spent everywhere and seven total points earned per dollar spent with GM, bringing you one step closer to a new GM ride. That's the power of appreciation from us to you. Subject to credit approval, terms and limitations apply. Visit MyGMRewardsCard.com.